Let's talk about the broken world we live in. Oh, it's going to be one of those. Kind of. Fitting on a day where 21 years ago, the world broke in one of the more spectacular ways in my 53 years of life. Uh, today's September 11th, around this time uh, in 2001. Those of us who are alive and can remember, um, things looked pretty bleak. Uh, the New York skyline was different. Uh, nations were wondering, what's next? Everybody was afraid to open their mail for a couple months. Uh, we couldn't get away from it. I, I remember. Does anybody remember where they were? Yeah, I do. It's vivid. Because uh, those scenes and scenes like them throughout the history of the world uh, have shown just how broken things can get. Uh, the world broke, just so you're all clear, if you're not clear, uh, the world broke three chapters into the Bible. Uh, things were great. God made everything perfect. He created the first humans with the ability to choose, and when you know it, those humans chose not God. And, and things kind of have gone from there. We have upswings, great things happen. Anybody have anything good happen in your life every once in a while? God's good, right? Uh, but there's this undercurrent of brokenness that has shaped human history. We'll continue to shape human history until human history ends with the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you about the broken world that we live in. We're going to start a new series uh, today in, the, in a, a book of the Bible called 1 Samuel. If you're kind of new to the Bible, it's closer to the front. Uh, it's in the middle of the Old Testament. Our commitment to here as your pastors, as your church, is to teach you the whole of what the Bible says. The Bible is this um, conversation that we get to have with God. It doesn't read like your texts or something like that, but it's, it's this uh, re revelation, this revealing of God himself to us uh, through the 66 different books that we have encased in our Bibles. This one, 1 Samuel, takes place in a time when Israel... The nation that God has chosen for himself, the descendants of Abraham, have finally arrived in the promised land. Real quick, just kind of a quick summary of your Bibles. Genesis, creation, flood, things kind of go bad. Uh, God shakes the etch-a-sketch etch and starts over, okay? Uh, and then this guy Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis comes on the scene, and his descendants become basically the story of the rest of your Old Testaments. Now, at the end of Genesis... Uh, Abraham's uh, great-grandsons, no, grandsons, great, great it's, it's his descendants. Uh, they're, they're all found in Egypt at the end of Genesis as Joseph, uh, one of their family, has um, risen to power there and has uh, ushered them out of certain death where they were in famine, uh, living in Canaan, and he's brought them into Egypt. Exodus opens with the story of a guy named Moses. It's been 400 years now, the children of Israel are uh, captive to the Egyptians. They are their slaves. God hears their cries, and the Exodus tells a story of their emancipation, tells a story of their wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. That's a long story. Um, but then they come to a point where after 40 years of wandering, they're ready to cross over into this land that in Genesis God had promised Abraham. And the book of Joshua tells that story. If you get bored any time where I'm preaching, read Joshua. Lots of fights. It's really cool. They conquest the land. They divide it up into the tribes of Israel. Each one gets a territory, and that's where the book of Judges begins. Judges is the story, not of judges like Wapner 
or our Supreme Court, not those kinds of judges. Judges in in Israel's history were um, these heroes, essentially, that were basically brought onto the scene. God calls them out of anonymity, guys like Gideon and Samson and uh, all the girls like Deborah, Deborah, uh, these, these regular, just everyday Israelites uh, were basically uh, prompted by God to lead in, in crucial times in Israel's history. And their story is written for us in the book of Judges. Judges has a common theme, though. Uh, there's moments where God's people, the Israelites, serve him, and then there's way more moments where they don't. And as we open the book of 1 Samuel, we're really on the on the tail end of the book of Judges and the chronology of things. Now, the Bible kind of shoehorns this book called Ruth in between the two, but Ruth's kind of just this little, you know, uh, vignette. It's this little, you know, singular story of a, a woman named Ruth, her mother-in-law Naomi, her eventual husband Boaz. It's a great story, but it's just kind of this little tale that takes place in this time between Judges or during the time of Judges and First Samuel. Samuel is the last judge before the kings of Israel come on the scene. He's also a prophet. It's pretty cool. Gets lots of hats. Uh, But it's uh, at the end of Judges that 1 Samuel begins. And and here's the last verse in the book of Judges. We'll start there today. Everybody good with that? You can flip back in your Bibles just a little bit. But in Judges 21, verse 25, we get this broken world theme once again. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. We're going to find out about the kings in 1 Samuel. The first one's going to be a guy named Saul. Not great. Second guy's going to be David. Pretty good. Some bad moments. But the kings are coming. In these days, though, in the days of the judges, there was no king in Israel. There was no sovereign. There was no central government over the 12 tribes. The tribes kind of uh, function as as states do in our country. They just kind of govern themselves. Uh, And there was no uh, executive branch. There was no government over the whole thing. But here's the the part I want you to get. Samuel arrives at a time in Israel's history where everybody was doing what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound like something that could describe the culture that we're living in? Like ripped from our headlines, right? It's just a free-for-all out there. Everybody is defining truth the way they want to define truth. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. We've come up with a a philosophical term to describe it. It's called postmodernism, without going deep into the weeds on this. Basically, everything was theologically in the Western world, uh, deduced and discerned up until about the 1700s, which uh, brought on the French Renaissance and the dawn of modernism. Science became king. Math ruled the world. Whatever we could deduce and measure and empirically understand, that's what truth was. That kind of held the uh, the scene of thinking for a couple hundred years until the, the, the 1900s, and especially the mid-1900s, when postmodernism became all the rage. People looked at modernism and said, you know, science is cool. It can give us some things. Uh, you know, two plus two is four. But what if two plus two is banana? And people looked at people like that and were like, what are you talking about? It's true in my world. Two plus two from now on equals banana. And the postmodern way of thinking was born. Now, listen, uh, Solomon said, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. I remember Solomon saying that in Ecclesiastes, everything's the same. And if you want to understand what's said here 3,000 years ago in the book of Judges, and what's being said these days 
in the name of postmodernism, and what was done, uh, you know, thousands of years ago in the Garden of Eden, here's what the whole thing is. People do what is right in their own eyes. People say, I'm God. God's not God. In fact, there is no God. I'm God, and what's right to me is what's right. And we're living in an age where uh, if you don't agree with what they say is right, well, they're going to, I don't know, cancel you, uh, come against you in ways. It's becoming an intolerant postmodern world uh, ever increasingly in the age that we live. It's into this scene that uh, the story of Samuel begins. Let's start in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. It says this in verse 1, there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, I think I might have said that right, of the hill country of Ephraim. Ramathaim, Zophim, just basically, basically means Zoph Heights or Zoph Heights. That's where this guy Zoph settled. It was on the high country in a, a region of Israel called Ephraim. It's one of the tribes of Israel. In fact, here we go. Let's do the map. Anybody want to do the map? Here it comes. This is Israel. We've got the Mediterranean Sea over here where I spilled coffee just moments ago. Um, the Mediterranean Sea is over here. We've got Egypt down here to the south. Uh, the, the Israelites had come up and basically crossed the Jordan uh, uh, over here, where modern-day Jordan is. You got the Sea of Galilee, River Jordan, Dead Sea. All right, you with me? And then right over here on the uh, western shore of the Jordan River, you, you find Ephraim. And then just below Ephraim, one of the tribes, is, is a little tribe called Benjamin. It's the smallest of all the territories in Israel. And then below that one is the big one. It's called Judah. It's basically the whole basement of Israel. Everybody with me? And this is kind of extra. This is just for fun. But God chose in his, you know, uh, uh, bringing about leadership here in the story of 1 Samuel to go from Ephraim to Benjamin to Judah. Uh, Samuel is a descendant of Ephraim or, or an inhabitant of Ephraim. He's going to anoint Saul, who's a Benjamite, and, and Saul is going to do a horrible job. And so God's going to prompt Samuel to go down here to Judah and anoint one of the sons of Jesse, a guy named David. All right? And, and so... Uh, that's just the progression. But we start here in the book of 1 Samuel in Ephraim, on the Zeph Heights, in the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, there was a guy named Elkanah. He was the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, which is just gross. Would you please just eat meat? That stuff's disgusting. Uh, the son of, you got to be fast today. Okay, uh, it's a tofu joke. It's not funny. Let's continue. The son of Zeph. There it is. That's that. Uh, Ramathaim, Zophim stuff. And he's an Ephrathite. That just means he's from Ephraim. Uh, one last thing before I move on from verse 1. Uh, the son of Zoph is significant here because Zoph gets some play early in our Old Testament. So we know that Zoph is a Levite. Now, uh, Levi was one of the sons of Jacob, and he was a special son because the Levites didn't receive their own territory. They were kind of spread out through all of Israel. Anybody remember what the Levites did? What was their job? Priests is the word you need to remember when you think Levites. Not every Levite was a priest. Some of them did different jobs, but they were the only ones that God would allow to serve in his temple as priests. And so the Levites didn't get their own territory. They just kind of served God in his uh, you know, faith of the time, the Jewish religion, as the priests. And so Elkanah, Levite, who lives in Ephraim. Let's keep going. Verse 2. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. If you're here today and your name's Hannah, it's a Hebrew word that means gracious. So gracious woman, or God has been gracious to this woman. Hannah means grace. Uh, that was her name. She's the first wife 
almost always in any genealogy or any explanation of a family, they'll start from first to last. So Hannah's the first wife. And there was another wife. Her name was uh, Panina. Those uh, sandwiches are delicious. I love uh, paninas. They're very good. Uh, that's panini. Sorry. Anyway, uh, uh, her name means pearl. So you got Grace and Pearl. That's what they'd be named if they were around today. Uh, and Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Uh, some of you are like, wait a minute, Mark, this is one of my problems with the Bible. Uh, polygamy. I've watched Sister Wives, and Cody and the girls just can't get along, right? <laughs> some, of you watch, some of you watch Sister Wives. This guy does right here. <clears throat> is polygamy something that God wanted? Uh, emphatically, categorically, No. When you go to the definition of marriage in the Bible, you go to the first chapter of our book. It says that the man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall cling to his wife. There's one man and one woman meant to be in covenant relationship with God. That's marriage. So it's not polygamy, and it's not the model that we have currently in our government that allows men to be with men and women to be with men. We love everybody. Let me say that quickly. We love everybody, even when you disagree with them, but the Bible teaches a monogamous one man, one woman relationship in marriage. So polygamy is not God's idea. Now, some of you are like, well, why is it in the Bible so much? Because people do these workarounds. In marriage, one of them is called divorce. Jesus said in some cases it's okay for you to get divorced. Was it his idea? Did he want divorce to occur in marriages? I know many of us here are. But his aim is that for these marriages that are started to stay together. But he allows for them because we are, one more time, living in a broken world for broken things to occur in the wake of what breaks. So polygamy, it was a custom in the Near East, especially amongst those who wanted children. And children were huge in marital relationships. In fact, ladies, don't want to diminish you here, certainly it's much different than the age that we live in. But back in those days, if you weren't married, A, and bearing children, B, you weren't really doing anything in that culture. There wasn't a whole lot else for you to aim for. And if you're like Hannah, married, but not bearing children, that husband would get desperate. Why? Because he needed kids. He needed a workforce, someone to help him on the farm, keep things going. He needed some ancestors, someone to pass this thing on to so that his name wouldn't be removed from the earth. So husbands back then would take second wives. It was culturally acceptable, even though it wasn't God's idea. Now, just real quick so we can move on. Polygamy doesn't work out in your Bibles. Like, look at most of the polygamous relationships. Things go horribly wrong. Abraham, Sarah wasn't having a baby. She was like in her 90s. She's like, you know what, Hagar, she's kind of fertile. And so he gives, she gives her handmaiden, Hagar, to her, her husband, uh, Abraham. And she has a baby named Ishmael. And if you don't know that story, things went horribly wrong. You move forward in the, in the, in the Bible, and, and in almost every instance where polygamy is discussed, it, it goes badly. I mean, come on, marriage is hard enough between two people. <laughs> Amen from the people in the front. All right, uh, that guy's going to have a hard lunch. Okay. <laughs> now this man, Elkanah, verse 3, used to go up year by year from his city, wherever that was in Ephraim. Well, we know it, it was Zophites, right? From his city in Zophites, he would go up every year to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts. Let's stop there. It's an interesting name. It's not always used in the Old Testament. It means the, the, the Lord of the heavenly armies. It's this word that the writer of Samuel, 1 Samuel, likes to use to describe the sovereignty of God. So Elkanah takes his family from Zophites 
to a place called Shiloh. Before Jerusalem was Jerusalem, Shiloh was Shiloh. The worship of God started in Ephraim, and it kind of transitioned down, just like the leadership of Israel started in Ephraim and transitioned down. Are you with me? It's going to end up in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem's not a thing yet. Shiloh's the place where God is worshipped. So he would go to the temple in Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle of God uh, existed at the time. We don't have a temple. That's wrong. Tabernacle was set up there. And, and uh, he would go there to, to do the, the requirements of the Jewish faith, the feasts, the sacrifices. And when he would get there, he would meet the, the leadership team of Ephraim at the time. They were led by a guy named Eli. He was the high priest, and he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. All the fans of Phinehas and Fur about there, that's where they got it. Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, Eli, just so you know, not a great leader. Hophni and Phinehas, criminal. Like the worst. We're going to read about them. Keep coming. But here we get them introduced. Verse 3, here we go. Or 4. On the day when Elkanah's family went to sacrifice, he would give portions of the sacrifice. This is how the the Jewish faith worked. You would give uh, a goat or a a calf or or whatever and sacrifice to God. Uh, That that, uh, sacrifice would be burnt, and then portions of that meat would come back, not just to the priests so they could eat, but also to the family. That's how the feast would be, uh, you know, secured. They They would take the meat from the sacrifice. So Elkanah's got all this barbecue, right? He's got all this pulled pork, not in the pigs, that's a bad analogy. But anyway, uh, but he's got all this barbecue, and he goes to his family, and he starts doling it out so everybody can take part in the feast. He gives portions to Penny, and his, uh, his second wife, and to all of her sons and daughters. And, and then he goes to Hannah, verse 5, and he gives a double portion. Why? Because he loved her. Though is the word the Hebrew gives here. Uh, but you can just throw and in there. Because he loved her and... Uh, the Lord closed her womb. He, he, he had pity for this wife who couldn't bear him children. Uh, the double portion is kind of significant here. You want to guess what the firstborn son of every family gets in the inheritance? Double portion, right? And so it's this metaphor. It's this a symbolic way of him saying, I know you didn't give me my first son, but I, I love you like you did. Here's his portion. It's double. So here, just so we're picturing this, you got Penny and all of her kids sitting at this picnic table over here, and they got their barbecue, and then you got Hannah alone, one, one person at her picnic table, and she's got twice as much food as everybody's got over there. <laughs> Can I uh, just mention something else here? He says uh, that uh, Hannah got a double portion because he loved her. And then, and then this, I don't know if you just passed over this, but read it again with me. What's the last little bit of this verse say? The Lord had closed her womb. Now, ladies, I don't know if you're here this morning and you're desirous of having children and can't. I am not trying to step on you, okay? I'm not trying to simply explain things that go wrong in people's lives. Is everybody with me? But here's what the Bible just taught us. Every once in a while... Hard things, really difficult things occur in life at the bidding of the God who made us. The Lord, it's so, uh, the Lord closed her womb. The writer of 1 Samuel doesn't duck the sovereignty of God in the hard things that Hannah is facing. Anybody here faced anything tough in life? Lost someone too soon? Uh, went through uh, a financial hardship that you could have never seen coming. Uh, you're, you're divorced today. It wasn't your idea. 
If you've ever gone through anything hard like that, here's the spiritual reality of that. God saw it. God allowed it. And this is the part that we don't like. In some of those things, God appointed it. And you're like, well, why would he do that? Okay, we don't have time to go through all this, but let's start at least with this. When we ask the question, why would a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? First answer, there's no good people. Okay, can we just stop with that right now? Most of the time when we feel like we've been cheated, it because we, it's because we have this sense of entitlement. I deserve. I'm not receiving, and I deserve, and so this is not fair. God's not fair. Okay, if God was fair, does everybody understand? There wouldn't be any us. Because none of us are righteous, Romans tells us. No, not one. None of us deserve anything. All the love and grace and mercy that God gives to us, those are on him, not us, because we deserve them. He chooses to give them anyway. So the question shouldn't be, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? The question should be, why doesn't God allow more bad things to happen to bad people? All right, that's just the beginning. Philosophers and theologians have been writing on that for years. But here's what we basically have to wrestle with. Uh, eventually, and let me encourage, some of us are hoping to have kids. Eventually, uh, this woman who's been barren for years has a, a son. Her name's, his name's Samuel, okay? But, spoiler alert. <laughs> that's what's coming. So let me encourage you, just because it's not happening yet doesn't mean it won't happen. Can I just start there? But let's also understand that in the hardships that we face, we have this much of the scene. We can see this far ahead in life, which, come on, we can't even see beyond uh, noon. Many, who's got plans for lunch? Anybody got plans for lunch? Hope they happen. I don't know if they're going to happen. Do you know that they're going to happen? Well, of course they're going to happen. I love barbecues. It doesn't matter what your plans are. It might not happen. Why? Because all we got is right now, and there it went. And now we got right now. Oh, there it went again. This is all we got. But guess who's got more? The God who in his purposes is allowing or appointing hard things to happen. Why does he allow or appoint those things to happen? It's because he can see where this is going and how these hard things are going to produce these great things, right? God works all things together for the good of those who love him. I'm standing before you preach right now because of a very hard thing that happened in my life. I was 20 years old. I was playing college basketball, albeit at a, you know, uh, uh, an alarmingly low level, all right? But I was, I was playing. I was a successful player. Um, and without, you know, too much detail, I, I got into a game uh, and, and, and ran down the floor, and I blew out the right ankle on my body in ways that I shouldn't really probably be walking straight. It was just shredded broken, done, right? And God healed me of that, but, but for the, the next three months, I went through the healing process of a really nasty injury. And God purposed that. I know that he purposed that in my life because I would lay on my back, not able to sleep because of the pain that was in my foot. It was elevated off of six pillows and all this stuff. And I would just, in the beginning, yell at God in my mind, in my heart, why would you allow this to happen? It's my favorite thing in life. Why would you take basketball away from me? But in those dark nights of my soul, God started talking back. And this kid who grew up in a pastor's house and knew all the answers and was going to a Bible school but didn't know God a lick, finally met him and finally engaged in life with him and finally, over time, surrendered his life to him. Not perfectly, not perfect, but that bad thing led to this sermon. 
and accept that I have those hard things. And listen, I could have, we could just put a camera up in the back and everybody could come up and say, here's my bad thing that led to me being here. God knows where we don't. The Lord closed her womb. Hmm. All right, so I told you we're talking about a broken world. And as the story of Hannah proceeds here, we're going to see a lot of broken things, for, for, to, be exa- uh, for, for to be exact. Uh, the first one is, in a broken world, people are mean. Testify, anybody out there had someone be mean to you? Like this morning in your car, is anybody? <laughs> yeah, people are mean. In a broken world, people get hurt, and the, you know what they do with that hurt? They hurt you with it. Look what happens in the story of these two wives. Uh, Hannah gets this double portion of food. Penina, who is just, you know, being a second wife and having these kids for this guy, Elkanah, she's like, hey, what about me? She's got double barbecue. What's, where's mine? And so she takes that hurt and that jealousy and that envy, and she turns it on her sister wife. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Would not let it go. Why? Because the Lord had closed her womb. Living in the family uh, with Hannah, uh, Penny knew exactly what to do to hurt Hannah the worst. Anybody related to someone like that? Again, when I raise my hand, don't feel like you have to. Okay. But isn't that crazy? The people we love the most can hurt us the worst. They just know. They know our weak spots. They know where the lines are. And sometimes when things aren't going well, they love crossing those things. Broken world, people act broke. They're mean. In a broken world, it's hard not to crater. It is so hard to keep going when all you're getting in life is disappointment and persecution. It's just hard to keep going. Look what happens with Hannah. So it went on. Year by year, this same scene is, is reproduced every time they'd go to Shiloh for these sacrifices. Here's yours, Penny. Here's double, Hannah. Penny makes fun of Hannah. Hannah feels terrible. Year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, used, uh, she Penny, used to provoke her, Hannah. Therefore, Hannah wept. And eventually it got to the point where she's not even eaten. This woman, I'm not a clinician, but I would diagnose her with depression. And if that's you, by the way, if, if, if life has been so broken that you're like, I don't even want to get out of bed. And that's why you're watching me online today. How's it going? The rest of you, if you're just being lazy and you lived on Windhorse, just come to church. Anyway, but, uh, <laughs> but some of us, we just can't get, I've been there, I'll testify, eight years into this pastorate, things were going great. The church was growing. Um, uh, but my kids were awesome and in, at great ages. My wife is still amazing and was amazing then. I had no reason to feel depressed, but I was depleted, spiritually exhausted, I was uh, asking, you know, the big questions about life, you know, nearing 40, and I'm like, what is this? I don't know what I'm doing, you know, or I just passed 40. Anyway, and I spent four days in bed. I just didn't get out of bed. Eleanor got so concerned, she's like calling elders from our old church in Dallas. I'm like, I don't know how to deal with this one. I made cookies and everything. He's not moving. I don't know how depressed I'd have to get to stop eating, but it happened to Hannah. She's just like, I'm not eating. <laughs> Some of us obviously eat our depression. But, uh, 
<laughs> in a broken world, thirdly, okay, let me just mention this. We're starting breakthrough groups. We have a counseling center up here. Uh, your pastors are here to listen to you. If you're going through depression, as we're going to see, Hannah's going to seek the help that she needs from God, and, and she's going to receive it from others. Uh, that's what you do when you start to crater, when, when in a broken world things get so hard you crater, is, is you lean into God through his people. Do that here. If, if you haven't done that, please let us help you. Third thing, in a broken world, loved ones don't always help. Anybody notice that? I need help. I'll help you. And then they don't. Husbands are really great at this. Honey, you seem depressed. Do steps one, two, and three. Have a great day. And they're uh, insincere and insufficient. This, this has always been a verse that's kind of bothered me. This is when I want, like, the, the Bible on video. Not like The Chosen, it's a great show, but, like, I want actual uh, video of, of what was said in this conversation. Because if you're just reading the words, you can read, you know, uh, Elkanah's... Uh, you know, tenderness into this. And, and it might have been there. He, he might have uh, said this to her, uh, his, his wife, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? He could have said it that way. Most of the husbands I know come at their wives like this. After year after year of a wife being depressed, they kind of get to hear with it. Has anybody been there? Fellas, don't raise your hands right now. <laughs> but here's how they say stuff. Hannah, what's with all the crying? Hannah, why don't you just eat something? I gave you twice as much as I gave the others. Hannah, why are you so sad? And here's why I think this might have been in the direction that Elkanah was saying stuff, because here's his last line. Hannah, am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, I know no husband in here has ever made his wife's plight about him. That's exactly what Elkanah just does. Hey, what about me in this? I know you're having a rough day, but aren't I worth 10 sons to you? Look what you got here. <laughs> right? <laughs> Suck it up, buttercup, right? Let's go. I'm awesome. And you should be happy. Yeah, loved ones... Even, listen, I'm not, I can't judge Elkanah. I don't know how he said what he said. Maybe he was doing this with all the very best, but he was insufficient for Hannah's needs. In a broken world, did you know that sometimes uh, God's leaders can fail you too? Now I'm going to skip forward in the story. I'm, I'm skipping over the part where Hannah goes to the, the, the tabernacle and, and she starts praying. We're going to get to that in a second. But let's go forward to this guy, Eli who's the pastor of the church. It says there in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 12, that she continued praying before the Lord. She's already there praying. And Eli observes her and looks specifically at her mouth. Hannah was speaking from her heart, not, uh, not from her words. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. So here's Eli, the pastor of the church. And you've got to ask questions. What's going on at this feast? How many people are going into this church just hammered? Because he looks... At, at Hannah, and he's like, well, there's another drunk one. Another drunk woman coming in here, can't even make words, can't even, so drunk, she's just, blah. And Eli says to her, verse 14, how long will you go on being drunk? Lose the bottle. 
And Hannah says to Eli, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink. I haven't even eaten, she could have said, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And if we have time, I'll get to this, but Eli's like, oh. <laughs> Can, okay, look at me real quick. If, if you have this fallacy in your heads that these uh, pastors of yours aren't going to have bad days, you, let me just help you. We are. We're not going to answer every situation perfectly. We're, we're, we're going to have those, you know, four-day stints where we don't want to get out of bed. We need a pastor. <laughs> uh, so, so, and I say all that not to give excuses. Certainly pray for your spiritual leaders to have what they need from God to be able to help you and serve you. Pray that we do these things well. I, I know so many people whose um, lives with God have been so hurt, so harmed by the choices of the leaders that they overesteemed, right? That it's been a hard thing for them to come back. Uh, listen, everybody's living in a broken world. Loved ones, spiritual leaders, you, me, we got enemies that are just lobbing grenades at us every chance they get. It's hard in this life. So how do we find hope in a broken world? How do we find what we need as we're waiting for what we want in a broken world? See, listen, the answer to that is the whole point of this sermon. In a broken world, we find our hope in God. Now the world would tell you, hey, you're never going to find hope, so at least be satisfied with vengeance. Hannah, go after Penny. Use that first wife magic and make her life miserable. That's what Cody's wives do, right? No, Hannah did not for that. Hannah, you got no hope. Just stay down. Be defeated. Live with this fatalistic whatever in life. Eeyore all the way. Develop this resentment towards your husband and let that divide you even more. These are the world's methods of dealing with the brokenness. And just so we're all clear, they don't work. Never have, never will. If that's what you're choosing and whatever your situation is, defeat, defense, denial, other D words, if that's your choice, it won't work. In a broken world, the only source of hope is the God who's holding things together. The Lord of hosts is who we go to when everything else breaks. Look at what it says in verse 9. After they, her family, not her, she's not eating, but after her family had eaten and drunk in Shiloh on this particular year, Hannah gets up. Eli the priest is sitting in the seat beside the doorpost of the temple or the tabernacle of the Lord. She was deeply distressed. And so she goes in to the house of the Lord and she prays to her God and she weeps bitterly and just lets it all out in his sight. In verse 11, it tells us what she prays. Initially, we're going to get to more of her prayers here in a as the chapter goes on, but it says, uh, she vowed a vow. She prayed a prayer of promise. And it, it starts like this, O Lord of hosts, there it is. O God of heavenly armies. O God in charge. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. 
It goes on, it says, but you will give to your servant a son. Spoiler alert, that's Sam. Then I will give him to you all the days of his life. And then she references something from the Old Testament called the Nazarite vow. A razor won't touch his head. It was basically this, this covenant, this high promise that uh, you know, for most who took it was for a period of time. But she's basically saying, my boy Sam is going to take the Nazarite vow for his entire life. I'll give him the whole thing, his whole life, back to you. And that's what's going to unfold as we read 1 Samuel together. It's what people mostly focus on when they read this first part of the book. Hannah prays for a son. God gives her a son. Hannah gives that son right back to God. But you know what I want you to focus on as we begin this study together? Look what she says in the first part of verse 11 one more time. Here's what her prayer was. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget me. God, if you'll just, I'm in the middle of this mess. If you'll just train your eyes on me. If in my affliction you will remember me and rescue me, if moving forward, as this affliction may continue, you, if you will not forget me, if she's basically saying, God, if I've got you, I can do this. If you're watching me, I can move forward. If you're providing for me, even as I hurt, even as I lack what I want, I know you can give me what I need. The story moves forward from there. Uh, she has her conversation like we just talked about with Eli. Eli gets to the end of that and snaps too, and he's like, oh, you were praying. Well, whatever you were praying, this is essentially what Eli says. I hope it works out. May God bless you with what you asked for him. And Hannah responds to that blessing in verse 18, if I can just go there. And she says to Eli, let your servant find favor in your eyes. What she basically says to him is, I, I pray your eyes see and my eyes see the things that I've asked for. And then it says this, that she, Hannah, the woman, went her way and what? She went right to the barbecue. I bet you she was hungry. Who knows how long she'd been fasting, but she found the strength to eat. And not just the strength to eat, but what's it say? And her face was no longer sad. She turned her frown upside down, and she changed. Now, you, this is the whole point. Do not miss this. She changed, but she still hadn't received yet what she asked for. Don't miss that. Because so many people think, if God would just give me what I want, I'd be happy. And they put off being happy or being whole until God provides what I've asked for. But what Hannah teaches us is that us being okay, us having hope, has nothing to do with us receiving what we want. The presence of God, his eyes on us, his remembrance of us, his not forgetting us, is what gives us hope. That's what we need in a broken world. That's what we desire, and that's what Hannah received. She got from God what she need, needed, even as she waited on God for what she wanted. Huge difference. Are you with me? Now listen, I know people are in here praying for healing. I got friends whose kids have brain cancer, whose, 
whose uh, you know, loved ones are walking through diseases, that they're just praying. And listen, I, when I pray for these people, I pray believing that God will heal. Not just that he can heal, but that he will heal. But as we're waiting for that prayer to be answered, you know what my chief prayer is? God, grant peace in this situation. That's what we need. We need peace and hope to face the days of the broken world that we live in. I was getting ready to preach this this morning. One of our elders, a guy named Fred, comes into my office. It's not his habit to do this. In fact, he's been gone visiting his family in Arkansas for months now, it feels like. Uh, but he's come back, and he was in our, my office this morning. And I was like, hey, man, how you doing? He's like, brother, I just wanted to come pray for you. And I sat down in my de- uh, desk chair. And just so we're clear, every time I preach to you, I'm a wreck. Like, I'm, this, is, this is a Sunday when everybody's going to figure out I'm no good at this. This is a Sunday where everybody's going to understand that this has all just been a huge joke, right? You don't know what you're doing. You're not worthy to be up in front of these people, right? This is stupid. I know you worked it on, on it all week, but it doesn't make any sense to you. How's it going to make sense to them, right? These are the great thoughts that go through your pastor's head, and most pastors, I would guess, before they preach. And so I'm sitting there, and that's what I'm doing when Fred walks in. He says, let me pray for him. He puts his hand on me. You know what he doesn't pray for? He doesn't pray this. Lord, I know I'm praying for a bozo right now, and I pray you, I pray you make something good come out of his face, because otherwise we've got no chance. You know, that kind of, he doesn't pray that. You know what he prays? He just says, Father, I don't know what's going on. We hadn't had any conversation. It was a, a high and a hug and a sit down, and he started praying. He's like, I don't know what's going on with this guy. I don't know what he needs. I don't know what's happening in his world. I haven't seen him for a couple months. But here's what I do know. You love him. You are for him and not against him. You are able to do whatever is necessary to be done in his life, in his family, in his marriage, and in his preaching. And God, what I pray for you is not all these big lofty wants. I just pray for your presence in his life. And for him to know that's enough. And the angel of God walks out of my office, and I came out here and yelled at you. And that, listen, we get to be that for each other. We get to be the reminders of Hannah's story to each other. While we're waiting for what we want, go to God for what we need. While we're hoping that things will change, Ask of God for what you require as you're waiting for life to turn out. And listen to me, last thing. Even if it doesn't turn out, he's still good. He's still enough. Life with him, if you're kind of new to the whole Jesus story, Rick, I don't know if you're out there listening to me, but if you're new to the whole Jesus thing, life with Jesus just puts life without him to bed. There's just nothing to compare it to, even when things go wrong in a broken world. And so let's walk with him. Let's pray to him. Let's pray for each other in him. Let's trust him for what we lack. You know what Psalm 91 says about Jesus or about our God? It says that he is our refuge and our strength, and in him we can put our trust. God's faithful. Remember that as you walk in life through this broken world.